as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famine and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to my nations and then the end will come. Bill and Melinda Gates. Uh, perhaps you saw the headlines this week uh, that they announced their divorce, another high-profile divorce in our culture. Uh, one of my buddies, um, he passed on a meme. I actually saw it passed around on, on a few threads, uh, and it's this. He says, if the world's two richest men cannot keep their wives happy, what hope do we have? Now, obviously, as a Christian, this is coming from a non-Christian uh, world perspective, but it's speaking to Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates um, as the two richest men, and, and uh, I'm guessing that as a man who wrote this meme, and, and we can read many uh, values and meanings and interpretation uh, into this meme, but I, I want to highlight one, and it's this, that relational fidelity is rarer and rarer in our culture. And by what I mean by relational fidelity, by fidelity I mean commitment, a stick to itness no matter what. And the opposite of that is a word for sure in Christianity that pops up as you, if you're a Bible reader, then you come across the word covenant, which would be the diametric opposite of that, okay? And so relational fidelity is really about covenant. John Duffy, a psychologist, he wrote an opinion piece in response to the Gates divorce. And he observes that in the past decade, uh, what he calls gray divorces have doubled. And by gray, he's speaking to people who are 50 and older. And those uh, divorces have doubled. And the Gates and Bezos would uh, be uh, under that category. And he writes, listen, Many couples will have raised children together by this time and discovered things about one another they admire as well as ways in which they wholly disagree, meaning they stop liking the other person too. These people no longer assume their marriage is necessarily a lifetime commitment if it no longer works for one or both partners. Okay? Now, today's passage is not about marriage on the surface, but this example of marriage is a fruit of a root value in our culture. And the deeper root 
issue, the value is this, that our culture preaches, speak your truth. That's what our culture is about. If you look out and take time to observe, you see it all the time in interviews and celebrities and so forth, speak your truth, meaning our culture more and more worships self-convenience, self-defining of right and wrong. We are less and less a culture of unconditional stick to itness. And the marriage example I opened up with is just one manifesting fruit from the root of self-convenience in our culture. This value, it's only increasing uh, and continuing in the younger generations. Uh, the generation of my kids, uh, one of their most influential musical artists of Generation Z, uh, boldly announced to the Twitter world this past week, my thing is that I can do whatever I want. It's just another way of speaking your truth. Now, for the Bible reader, this should be nothing new because it was the very lure of Satan himself going back to the beginning in the garden and the way he tempted Adam and Eve for them to speak their own truth, for them to become their own God and to define their own right and wrong. Now, friend, if we're going to appreciate Jesus Christ, no matter where you're at in your journey whether you're still investigating or you are a committed Christ follower today, if we're going to appreciate Jesus, the Christ, you have to consider a radically countercultural value of covenant, of stick to itness, and what I'm going to word as an undying love today. Okay? Uh, not what can I get out of it, but an undying love. I want to speak of an undying love for Christ. Uh, Paul, the apostle, in his letter to the Ephesians, I love his benediction for them. And he says, grace to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And we see uh, this similar heart in different words come out today. And so my hope and prayer, um, as I was working through the passage, this prayer stirred up in my own heart. And I hope it stirs up in your heart too, to want to talk by faith to God in this way. Lord, give me an undying love for you through triumph and tribulation, whatever life throws at me, to the very end. An undying love for you to the very end. I want to ask uh, as an overarching question then today, uh, what are the characteristics of the Christ follower's undying love? And the first idea that I hope you'll see with me in the passage is this, that the Christ follower's undying love always lives in view of eternity. As we pick up in today's text, we find Jesus on the Mount of Olives uh, in terms of time. Remember, this is Passion Week, and if my calculations are correct, this is a Wednesday evening. And uh, the next evening, he will have his Lord's Supper, uh, Passover with his disciples, and then in two days, he will be crucified. And so the Mount of Olives was just outside Jerusalem, and we're to understand that this was the disciples' base camp, and he was going in and out of Jerusalem through the week. Uh, and, and resting at night uh, in the Mount of Olives and, and even uh, sleeping there. And so, uh, Matt, for this reason, Matthew's chapters 24 and 25, a little bit of um, helpful Bible trivia, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 have come to be known as the Olivet Discourse. And it deserves a special title because Jesus pretty intensely and forebodingly speaks about end times. He speaks about a chapter in God's plan in history that is called the end times, but also speaking of a definite 
end, the end of the end times when Jesus actually returns and consummates his kingdom and creates a new earth and creates a new government and life with him as king of kings uh, and doing life as he meant it to be and God dwelling with his people and uh, us being his people, his church. Now, the disciples, uh, tongue-in-cheek, sometimes they're a bad example to us and we're to learn from their mistakes um, and, and, and other times they are good examples. And today is a good example. And we should take a cue from uh, their question to Jesus. And so they asked, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so do you see it? The disciples are asking about living in view of the end. Now, uh, an acronym that's been helpful for me uh, to keep this in mind in my Christian journey is alive, A-L-I-V-E, and it comes from my youth ministry days, Uh, and alive stands for always live in viewing eternity, and certainly our faith, it's encouraged to become alive when we have a view of the end. Uh, Ask my kids, uh, when mom and dad are out running errands or on a date or whatever, and then they know all of a sudden, we do just a quick phone call, oh, we're coming home, and all of a sudden you know, you know that they are rushing to do their homework, make their room, make their bed, whatever. And there's something about the end uh, that stirs up to action, to life. And so it's good for the Christ follower to have a healthy consciousness about Christ's return and what we as Christ followers have to look forward to the hope of seeing Christ face-to-face, the hope of living life in God's new creation, it is meant to, it can give the deepest meaning and motivation for our present day. Even the view of God's judgment can stir up healthy things in our soul and give good meaning to uh, and motivation for our present day. Now, of course, a healthy consciousness about Christ's return can certainly cross over into the territory of unhealthy, cultish preoccupation and overstepping uh, predicting of dates. We shouldn't go into that territory. And so I appreciate what Matthew Henry says here, uh, reflecting on this passage. What Christ here said to his disciples tended more to promote caution and wisdom than to satisfy their curiosity, more to prepare their hearts for the events that should happen than to give a distinct idea of the actual events, detail for detail. So I want to ask, are you always living in viewing eternity? Was that a part of your Christian life this past week? Was that uh, your attitude, your lens, in going to work, in relating to friends and family, in in recreation? Were you living in view of eternity? The Christ follower's undying love is meant to have this characteristic. Well, next, the Christ follower's undying love learns to discern between true hope and salvation. If we're going to have an undying love for Christ to the very end, then we need to stick to the path of following Christ and not be led astray. And that's why Jesus says in verse 4, as we continue, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. 
They want to know, okay, I want a view of the end. And the, what Jesus says very first in his answer is, see that no one leads you astray. Now, the English doesn't bring it out very well, but that word see there in the original Greek language actually means to perceive and discern. And Matthew uses the same word, I believe in Matthew 6, when he speaks of your father who sees you in secret. Even though you're in literally the physical dark that, and praying secretly that God can discern your heart. He can perceive your heart and were to discern, to, have a, to grow in discernment so that no one leads us astray. But then that begs the question, to lead us astray from what? How are they trying to mislead us? Uh, mislead us? What do we need to discern? And Jesus gives the answer in verse 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. That's what we need to discern. Jesus saying, many will come in my name, meaning many will come and say, I am Christ. That's what he means, that they will take on the identity that they are the Christ and lead many astray. Now, Christ, when we hear that, our instinct is just to sort of put that in our, okay, that's a religious word category, right? We think, okay, that's a religious word. But basically what it meant for Matthew's readers and what it means for the Christ follower today is first, uh, an, an, an anointed Messiah or Savior. And Messiah was God's Savior, His sent one, chosen one, to save uh, God's people from their sins. But I want to bring that even more down to earth. And especially if you're investigating uh, Christianity, I want to say that you are looking for a Christ. You probably have a Christ in your life right now because in everyday terms, Christ simply means an authoritative hope, and you might not use the word salvation, but you have something supremely central in your life that is your authoritative hope that you look to. It could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be a promotion, it could be a title, it could be uh, material things, it could be the, the affirmation of that person in your life. It, it, it could be anything that we look to as our hope authoritatively. And functionally, we're looking to that as what will save us, what will give us happiness. And so Jesus is saying, if you're going to have an undying love, you need to learn to discern uh, when people are offering different authoritative hopes. We need to discern true hope and salvation from false Christ, false hope and salvation. Now Jesus here, uh, I believe he's a master teacher, master discipler. And when he was speaking here, he was speaking, he was killing two birds with one stone. He had two layers to this. First, he was literally uh, speaking to a literal person who would be an antichrist. Okay, and that's what we typically think of when we think of antichrist, false Christ. But also for his church to come, I, I really believe, and I'm going to prove it to you in a, in a moment, um, that he was speaking to a spirit a culture of antichrist, of false hope and salvation. To prove it to you, I'm going to turn to one of uh, Jesus' closest disciples while Jesus was on the earth, uh, John the Apostle. And in his first letter, uh, he addresses Christ followers as God's children. And he says, children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And so John is agreeing with Jesus, speaking of the end of the age. You see, the end of the age is a chapter in God's plan and history. 
And John is saying we are in that last hour. Now, John, when he was writing, he believed he was in the last hour, which means you and I as well, 2000, some 2,000 years later, we are in the end of the age. Now, that's different from the end, the end. There's the end of the age, and then there's the end when Christ actually returns and inaugurates his kingdom. Now, John says, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. And so it seems like John is speaking about one person. And this is our natural instinct. And it's maybe because of Hollywood, uh, because of whatever reason, but typically we think of this one iconic figure spawned in the bowels of hell and this Hollywood apocalyptic movie type of figure. And, and we think of this Antichrist. And even John's listeners uh, the people that he was pastoring were thinking of this one person. But look how John corrects. He says, he clarifies, so now many antichrists have come. Many antichrists. And therefore we know that it is the last hour. And this is agreeing with what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Many will come in my name, proclaiming they are the Christ. They're offering a different hope and salvation. Now, John, he brings it uh, eerily close to home and even uh, scarily close to home. Because in verse 19, we continue, they went out from us. These many antichrists, they went out from us. What is John saying? In our church alone, even within our church, there are those who call themselves Christians and then they've abandoned the faith. They've left they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us to the very end. And so even John, in his own way, is speaking to an undying love for Christ to the very end. And John clarifies even more, skipping a few verses later, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And so we need to look past what, whether it's Hollywood or our own minds, we've created this, this you know, scary, you know, born in the bowels of hell, apocalyptic type of antichrist figure. No, th this word is meant to be so familiar. It, it could be your neighbor who is the antichrist. It, it could be a family member. It could be your coworker. John is saying, he defines it very simply, bottom line, as anyone who denies the Father and the Son. Anyone whose hope and worldview is contrary to Jesus Christ's worldview. So I want to ask, are you growing in your ability to discern Christ from false hope and salvation? Our culture is inundating us with so many false hopes. I've already spoken of one at the beginning of the sermon, speak your truth. That is a popular message these days. Be true to your authentic self. Just whatever you say is right is right. Similar to that and a cousin of that is love is all you need. And yet you press these people who say it's just about love. Let's be inclusive. Don't, why are you so moral and, and being exclusive of certain lifestyles and things and beliefs and so forth? Let's just all love and be inclusive. But if you press them, they will have a boundary where they say, no, but this person doesn't deserve my love. So there's hypocrisy there. It doesn't work fully. 
What I've observed during the pandemic, um, and it, it's really become clear and come to the surface, uh, is that science has all the answers. This is a, a false, a, a spirit of antichrist. This is a culture of anti-Christ, a false hope. Uh, one of my buddies, he's, he's crude, he's crass, he's raw, he keeps it real. And, and uh, in a moment of self-deprecation, um, he, he cracked this joke. He, he said, um, you know, I don't like to think of myself as an ugly man. Uh, I like to think of myself as a really good-looking monkey, right? <laughs> and that's, and, but right in that joke is an intersection of some false gospels, false Christs, false hopes. Right in that joke, he's believing evolution, atheism, science uh, as ultimate. And he's, he is the guru in my circle of friends of positive thinking, trying to see uh, positively as much as possible. But that in itself is, is a slight, it's a very subtle false gospel. Yes, it's good to be positive. But if you think in being positive that you can save yourself, Apart from Christ, that positive thinking will not help you when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Very related to positive thinking these days is mental health. Hear me out very uh, carefully. Okay? When I see mental health, I, I hope that people are healthy mentally. I really do. I'm not knocking mental health, but this also is a very subtle false gospel because it is only one third of the health that we actually need. Instead of Bell Canada having mental health day, Bell Canada should be having soul health day because the whole picture is that we are a soul. God has created us not only mind because that assumes for many people what mental health means. It assumes basically we are just an organic uh, mass, and our health depends on biochemistry. Uh, and, and just as long as the brain is functioning correctly, then everything else will go well. And it assumes under it greater worldviews of a life apart from God, that we don't need God per se. Now, mental health then is just one third of whole health, which is soul health. Because the soul, when we look at scripture, it, it's God putting together so beautifully our mind, which is mental health, but also our affections, what we become attached to in the deepest places of our desires and our will. And so if you think of a three-legged stool, you need all three legs for that stool to be balanced, to be whole. And so it should really be about a whole, a soul health. I'm just giving this as an example. Are you able to discern these kind of things? Because if we just you know, naively, uh, without critical thinking, just go down these paths, we could perhaps one day find ourselves easily, uh, in the end, misled. Well, next, I hope you can see with me that the Christ follower's undying love knows calm in chaos. Jesus continues, and he is so real, he is so honest with his followers, and this is the last a week of his life as uh, he knew it uh, in that moment. He's about to be crucified and for the sins of the world. And he, as most people near the end of their life are, uh, he becomes very 
uh, honest and giving, uh, taking honest account of life. And he warns, he warns his disciples, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And here's where I'm getting the common chaos. Jesus says, see that you are not alarmed. Again, there, be discerning. It's the same see there. Be discerning so that you don't become alarmed. Alarmed here means just literally afraid, anxious, surprised. And Jesus is saying that a quality of the Christ follower, if, if you are immersed in Christ's undying love for you, then that should translate into, that should work itself out as not being uh, shaken in the midst of all the chaos of life. Now certainly, even from when Christ said this to the present, I actually looked up and I was attempting a list of all the wars that have happened through history since around Jesus' time to the present, and I couldn't fit it, and it was too difficult to make a slide, meaning that's how many wars have happened. And certainly even in our day, we hear of famines and earthquakes. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We see evidences of this life being broken by sin. And so here, we we should, again, be convinced we are in the end of the age. These things are happening. But for the Christ follower then, we are calm in the midst of this chaos. It should be Christ followers who are most composed and have a, a calmness and a resolution to keep moving forward in the midst of this pandemic as we abide in Christ. And Jesus uses a beautiful metaphor here. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's the metaphor of giving birth to a child. Of course, the, the end goal is to be holding that beautiful baby, healthy and whole in your arms. And that represents the fullness of God's kingdom. It represents the end, the end point when Jesus returns. The fullness of God's kingdom being inaugurated. And Jesus saying, all the chaos you see in life, that needs to trigger to you. We're in the end of the age. And God's kingdom is going to come. So I appreciate, again, Matthew Henry. Uh, drew on him a lot. This week he helped me a lot in uh, just preparing for the sermon. And he says this, reflecting on this part of the passage. It is against the mind of Christ that his people should have troubled hearts, even in troubled times. So can you say with the psalmist, this is from Psalm 62. Can you say with the psalmist, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. There's a calmness in the midst of the chaos. Now, let me make it clear. What I'm not saying is that you are impervious to anxiety. That's not what I'm saying. That, that's too high of an expectation. That will crush your spirit. You, you, you will be defeated if you have that expectation on yourself. But the psalmists, they give us permission to be anxious, to be troubled, but to bring all this before God and to end with saying, and yet my hope is in God alone. And so can you say with the psalmist, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock. And my salvation, my authoritative hope, my fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. Well, 
I hope you'll see with me as well that the Christ follower's undying love prepares to take an unashamed public stand for Christ. Look, just being black and white and real uh, with you and speaking this to my own soul, in the natural course of our witness, our Christian witness, you must be open and ready to the possibility and nay, I believe the inevitability that we will be mocked, spurned, and even persecuted for our Christian conscience and allegiance to Jesus Christ. This will happen. If you take everything that Christ has called us to, and if we're attempting to live that out publicly in the Toronto that we live in today, inevitably you will begin to have friction with the culture. Put it another way, if you had a time machine and you took me 10 years from now uh, and we came to 826 Eglinton uh, and I'm standing here 10 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if I found out that there is a law that prevents me from giving the whole counsel of God on things like, for example, sexual ethics and sexual identity. I wouldn't be surprised. I hope that's not the case. But I wouldn't be surprised if our society and culture has gotten to that point where there's an actual law against me being able to preach the full whole counsel of God. Now, my point is this, then we we all know whether just generally in life, that practice is a good thing for the real thing. You need to practice uh, real scenarios. And the more you practice that, the more you ready your heart your courage, your words, your responses, your, your, your composure. The point is, we need to prepare to take an unashamed public stand for Christ. Maybe that public stand might just be one-on-one with your neighbor. Maybe you will have a platform to be standing in front of, uh, uh, in an arena one day and to make a public stand. Maybe some of you might be interviewed on the news someday. Maybe you might write an article. Whatever it is, we need to be prepared. This is a characteristic of a Christ follower's undying love. And we see this, Jesus, in verse 9 and 10, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And Jesus sadly warns that even in verse 10, from within the church, then many will fall away and betray one another. There'll be even those in the church. This is not me trying to be uh, guilt tripping and to scare you. These are Jesus' words at the end of his life before being crucified. And he's exposing his heart, pouring out his heart to his disciples even as he's about to take their place on the cross for their sins. And he makes the sad uh, foretelling that even within the church, some will fall away and betray one another. There will be those who called themselves Christians, but they renounce Christ. They fall away because they don't want to be hated. Perhaps they have the idol of just needing to be loved and accepted. Perhaps they don't want to suffer. They don't want to die. Perhaps... Most 
Sadly, the resurrection of Christ hasn't truly taken root and grace hasn't transformed the heart to give an unshakable, fearless face in death. And so following Jesus, it will necessarily make our morals, our take on pleasure, our explanation for life, and our purpose based on Christ's eternal perspective different from the status quo of the world. And this will happen in the classroom. This will happen at work. This will happen in your neighborhood. This might happen even in your own family. And so I ask, if tasked, has your soul built up the strength and courage to stand up publicly for Jesus Christ? But finally, and we won't be able to get to all of the passage today. I'm going to do my best to send something out during the week to uh, just cover what I was not able to cover today. But we'll end here. The, the Christ follower's undying love lives out Christ's overarching life mission. Now, let's pause here. If you're discerning, then hopefully something is going on in your mind. Okay, Albert, please get to the gospel. Please get to grace, because if you just end here, then you are also being a bit of a false Christ, Albert, in your preaching. Because, yes, you're giving me great things, great morals, more to-dos. I'm giving you expectations of the Christ follower. I'm asking you, love God, love Christ with an undying love. But, and and the, the subtle message there could be that you have to do these things. You might walk away, oh, I'm not worthy. I, I feel so guilty. And I have to do more to be saved, then I would be a false Christ as well. And that's why I love that Jesus, he ends this part of the Olivet Discourse with saying to his disciples, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. This gospel of grace will be proclaimed. What's going to fuel your undying love is that you have been loved first with Christ's undying love. His gospel of grace says that Jesus has fulfilled God's law where we could not. Jesus has taken the punishment for us when we ought. Jesus covers our sinful hearts through faith with His perfect righteousness blood-bought. Now the Father unfathomably loves us, though undeserving, as Christ himself, as his children, as his precious lot. And when this captures your heart, when God's undying love to you through Christ captures your heart, then we want to overflow this amazing grace and make effort to undyingly love Jesus Christ. When we're found in his grace, then Christ's powerful words, you are chosen, becomes the calm to your soul in the midst of chaos. When you are found in his grace, then Christ's unbreakable words, you are loved unconditionally and eternally, becomes your confidence to be unashamed in public. Where do we find the storehouse of these treasured words? We find it in God's law. I didn't get to the point, but Jesus speaks of a lawlessness that leads to a a cold heart. Meaning we need, the opposite would be, we need more of God's law, His word, the Spirit-inspired scriptures to keep fueling this love. And so we must, we must continue to take Christ and His gospel, proclaiming His words 
and demonstrating his deeds to the world, especially to those who have not heard. And that's why Jesus says here now, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Jesus now, he's not only speaking of the end of the age, a chapter in history, but he's speaking of the end point when he will return and inaugurate his kingdom. And this phrase here, all nations, all nations is special because in the Greek it's ta ethne, and ethne sounds like ethnicity. It's where we get our English word ethnicity, and it means literally a people group in the original language. And so there's something here on one hand Jesus is saying that there's some kind of, I want to be careful with this, it's not a formula, but it is some notion that if we can just complete this task of taking the gospel to all people groups, then Jesus will return. But you have to balance that with Jesus saying himself, only the Father knows the date and time. So it's not like we can trigger God to come back. We can't trigger Jesus to come back if we fulfill this task in a measured way, as if we can control Jesus and the return. No. It's for another day, but Jesus mysteriously even says, and he doesn't know the time. Only the Father knows. Now, I want to show a video that explains this uh, really uh, clearly. Um, so check it out. What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group, but to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations or people groups within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs, or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude, stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb people, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to ta ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. 
we must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that. Commend that uh, website to you. It has lots of other great resources and videos. And the video illustrates what Jesus is teaching here. Now again, let's be clear. It's not that we can control Jesus and we can trigger his return. Uh, but I think what Jesus' point is and what we need to take away is that similar to the Apostle Paul, his ambition was to take the gospel to where it hasn't been preached yet. And if we're to apply this properly as a church, uh, and in fact the elders leading up to this sermon we connected, and, and I'm happy to publicly announce uh, that the elders are committed to discerning as a church together uh, to begin with at least one unreached people group that we want to adopt as our own as a church and begin to commit resources and energy to seeing the gospel taken there to that ethne and then the end will come. And so all that to say, Lord, give me an undying love for you to triumph and tribulation to the very end.